the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Today is a big day, a notable day, because today marks the conclusion of our study through the Gospel of John. (laughs) I don't know whether to cheer or grieve or a little bit of both. It was May 6th. 2012, when we began this series, five years ago this month, and though much has changed in my life and yours during that span, John's gospel has remained a constant source of God's truth and grace. Today is sermon number 101 in our consideration of Jesus Christ as he is presented in this book. The epilogue to John's Gospel, chapter 21, finds Jesus on the beach with some of his closest friends and followers, his disciples. For roughly three years, he has lived with them and ministered to and among them. Now, having recently been crucified and resurrected, and as John's account comes to close, the scene finds Jesus coming again to meet them, to help them, to guide them, to provide for them, and even share morning breakfast with them. And on the surface, it appears, or it doesn't appear, I'm sorry, on the surface, it appears very common, not at all spectacular, and that's the point. It simply pictures an everyday relationship with God, filled with everyday grace from God that impacts our everyday lives in this world. And as the morning unfolds, after breakfast, Jesus shares a meaningful moment with the Apostle Peter, a a powerful one. This soon-to-be Apostle Peter had recently failed Jesus as a disciple And as a friend, so Jesus, as only Jesus can do, and as he so often does with us, addresses Peter's past in a way that brings hope to his present and his future. Jesus came to Peter, not to condemn Peter, but to commission Peter for service. He took the moment of Peter's deepest failure, as we saw last week, and used it to propel Peter forward for something deep and meaningful. It's a stunning example of God's love and care. And as our conversation continues, Jesus then calls Peter to faith, to follow Him. It's a call to discipleship. So as the book of John concludes, we learn from these two disciples, both Peter and John, a bit more about what it means to follow Christ who likewise comes to us with a similar call. And my thought, or my driving point, or guiding thought, is that because because of all that Jesus did and said, we can trust Him 
and testify with confidence to the grace and love of God. So let's read this together. John chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. Jesus is talking with Peter when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die. And yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know, we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for yet another opportunity to gather together in your name, around your word, with our Bibles open before us, and we pray that you would open us to your word. Already we have exhorted our souls to bless you. And now we would ask God that you would bless our souls. So will you come and speak to us? Will you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive? Will you, O Holy Spirit, come and enable us to rejoice and receive all that you have for us today, that we might walk and find life in your name to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Churches talk a lot about discipleship. But we don't always explain what it means or how it looks practically. Discipleship is basically the process of becoming a committed follower of Jesus Christ. It's about life in Christ, life with Christ, and life for Christ. And here in this brief look at Peter and John, I think we see a few facets of discipleship that it help explain some of what following Jesus looks like in practice. Some of the things that apply to us as much as they did to them. 
From Peter we learn that discipleship, again, that's life in and with and for Christ. Discipleship is not about comparing ourselves to others, but about following Jesus even when it's hard and requires great sacrifice even to the point of persecution and death if necessary. You see, there is a cost to following Jesus. There is. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that up front. And so to him he said, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you're old, another will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And he's foretelling Peter's death, which we know from verse 19, while also emphasizing the cost of discipleship, basically saying that following Jesus and fulfilling the work He assigns to us will bring opposition from those who oppose Jesus and seek to deter the work. Though Peter once made his own decisions and plans, that's what Jesus means by dressing himself and going where he wanted, a day would come when Peter's life would be in the hands of those who sought to end him and end his ministry. Before, there's irony here in that before Christ was crucified, Peter had bragged that he'd be willing to die for Jesus if necessary, and now Jesus is essentially telling him that indeed that day is coming. If you were of the world, Jesus once taught, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, people, because Jesus has chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then he continues, you see, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We are naive and even foolish to think that we can follow Jesus without cost. That we can be friends with Jesus and friends with the world at the same time. Though God offers life in Christ as a free gift, salvation itself is free to us. Life with and for Christ requires sacrifice. It requires denying ourselves and our own selfish pursuits so that we can instead proclaim the goodness of a sovereign and saving God. You know, we have all been commissioned to share this good news with those who are enslaved to sin and under its penalty of, of death. We are called to call others to repent from sin and place their faith in Christ so that they might be rescued from sin and saved to Him. But, but because eyes are, are spiritually blind and hearts are spiritually hard, not everyone wants to hear this news. And so there is opposition to the work of Christ even today, which means there is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost. 
to following Jesus. That's why so often through the Gospels, Jesus told people to count the cost. It's why Jesus would have great throngs of people following him. I mean, just multitudes of people following, which we would think would be such a a raving success. And it seems like it's in those moments, in those moments in particular, where Jesus would stand before these great crowds and give a message about the cost of following him. And most would turn away. Informed of these things, I want you to notice how Peter immediately begins comparing himself with John. He turns around to see John at a distance. And he says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Now, don't miss what what he's doing here. I think it's so like us. Sin has so damaged us that we're always trying to compare ourselves to others to see how we measure up. It's our pride. So on one hand... Pride drives us to outdo each other in ways that would bring recognition and accolade our way. While on the other, the very same pride bristles when we assume that someone else has it easier than we do. Which is the assumption that Peter seems to make here about John. After learning that he will die for following Jesus, uh, Peter starts comparing himself to the others. And upon seeing John, he wants to know if John will die too. Not because he's concerned for John necessarily. No, he's concerned for what's fair. If I'm going to die, he thinks, what about him? What will it cost him to follow you, Lord. I think it's this way because Jesus rebukes the question. So Jesus can see right through it that, that Peter's not asking with a pure motive, but with a selfish one. You know, comparing ourselves like this breeds competition among us. And not in a healthy way. You know, there is a form of competition that brings out the best in us, but competition of this sort reveals not the best, but the worst in us. That's why keeping up with the Joneses is never a good thing. You know, it's funny how we, we try to justify ourselves. If, if, we ha- if, we, if we have it better than someone else, we chalk it up to our own strength, or our wisdom, or our work ethic, I've just worked harder than they have, or or just a general blessing from God. But if someone else has it better than us, we cry foul. We complain. We think it's unfair. And worse yet, We start belittling them and their accomplishments, even secretly or privately with others. We keep tabs on what they do and don't do, a mental record. And listen, 
Churchgoers are not innocent in this regard. You know, I'm not going to serve in that ministry anymore because, doggone it, so-and-so needs to step up. I'm not going to give to that need anymore because it's time for someone else to contribute. But if God has gifted you to serve in certain areas, serve. If God has blessed you financially in ways that allow you to give more, give more. The comparison trap is just that. And and listen, I'm just as guilty. I have to confess to you that even under the guise of ministry, I have been guilty of comparing myself to other pastors and our church to theirs. Maximizing, in my own mind, maximizing our strengths while minimizing theirs. You see, the problem with always comparing ourselves to others is that we become more concerned with what people think than with what God thinks. So seeking the approval of man, we all too often miss the will of God. Isn't that what Jesus says to Peter? He says, if it's my will that John remains until I come, Peter, what's that to you? You Follow me. If you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, the question to ask yourself is not whether the person next to you or across the street from you has it better or worse, or whether you are doing more or less than they are. The question, rather, is am I following the Lord and His will for me? Am I walking in step with Jesus? And one way to test yourself in this area is by how much you genuinely rejoice when others receive blessing from God that you may or may not receive. Jesus is saying that your relationship with Him means trusting Him and His will for you. So from Peter, we learn that discipleship is not about comparing ourselves to others, but about following Jesus even when it's costly. And now from John, we learn that discipleship is about trusting in God's will for you even when others misunderstand it. I want to explain this a little bit further. All right. I want you to notice how John basically falls into the same comparison trap as Peter. 
but in a different way. Because Peter assumed that John wasn't going to die for Jesus, which he apparently told the others, because we're told that it spread abroad. John, in verse 23, seems to take exception to this and then defends himself with this, against the spread of this rumor. So let me read this. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die, and yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain, what is that to you? Now, is it just me, or does John seem bothered? I think he's perturbed on two fronts. First, by Peter's wrong conclusion. Peter jumped to a wrong conclusion. And then by the spread of wrong information. So the discipleship challenge for John then was to trust in God's will, even though others misunderstood and misrepresented it. And we're faced with the same challenge. You know, none of us like being misunderstood. None of us like being misrepresented. Some of the biggest arguments, I mean, discussions between me and my wife occur when one of us feels misunderstood or misrepresented by the other. When I jump to wrong conclusions about what she thinks or does, I assure you it does not go well for me. And in the same way, I do not like it, I hate it, when I think she's doing the same to me. You know what it's like to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to feel the effects of misguided assumptions, to have people jump to wrong conclusions about you. And I suspect that you've been on the other side too. I suspect that you have no doubt misunderstood others at times and thus misjudged and misrepresented them. And so the takeaway here is to know God's will for you, to walk with the Holy Spirit in you, and thus to follow Jesus wherever He leads you, even if others don't understand, and thus take exception. And thankfully, hear this, God's will for you is not some great mystery we need to solve or uncover. God's will for you and for us all is revealed in the pages of the Bible for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the messenger of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, people, as long as you live by the truth of this book, you can be confident in God's will. Exactly how it plays out in your life will look different than, than in mine, obviously, but the truths remain the same. The Bible is God's revealed will to us, and it profits us and equips us to be messengers of God in this world. So, from Jesus and His interaction with these two men, we learn three things. 
about discipleship. We learn to count the cost of discipleship. We learn to avoid the comparison trap, and we learn to trust God and His Word and will for you. That's just some of what we learn. That's just some of what life in Christ and with Christ and for Christ entails. Just some of what John bears witness to. And this is the disciple that is bearing witness about these things, John writes in verse 24. And who's written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And then he continues in verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that could be written. As he's done throughout, John ends by pointing us to Christ, testifying to the marvelous things that he has done. And I just thought that since we've spent five years working our way through these 21 chapters, it would be good for us to look back and see time and again, chapter after chapter, just some of what we've learned concerning Jesus. In chapter 1, Jesus, being of the same nature as God, took on ours also. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be with us as one of us to save us by making known to us the grace and truth of God. From the opening chapter, we were exhorted to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, Jesus changed water to wine. A spiritual sign meant to showcase the change He makes in our lives, how He transforms us in Christ. We are made new by God. In chapter 3, Jesus taught that we must be born again by the Spirit of God. No amount of good works or righteous deeds will earn our way to heaven. Salvation is a gift from God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son. In chapter 4, Jesus went to meet a woman at a well in Samaria, an outsider shunned even by her own community. And there she learned that Jesus is to spiritual life what water is to physical life. That is the all-satisfying source of life from whom we receive the refreshment our souls so desperately crave. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who couldn't walk, which signaled an even greater healing. Being spiritually lame and paralyzed ourselves, we likewise need Jesus to do for us what we could never do ourselves. In chapter 6, Jesus miraculously fed a crowd of over 5,000 people, signifying that He is the bread of life who came from heaven to feed millions more. In chapter 7, Jesus called thirsty souls to Himself, promising regeneration, renewal, and rivers of life to all who trust in Him. In chapter 8, Jesus forgave an adulterous woman. He brought her hope where there was none, because He is the light of the world. We need not fear the dark of sin and death. 
In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind, restoring not only his sight, but also his dignity, a sign to show that we can be restored as well. In chapter 10, Jesus presented himself as the door by which we must enter the kingdom of God and the good shepherd who cares for us when we do. In chapter 11, Jesus, after weeping over sin and and grieving with those who grieve, raised Lazarus from the dead and promised to do likewise for all who believe. In chapter 12, Jesus likened himself to a grain of wheat that must die in order for others to live. In chapter 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, teaching them and us to love as he loves, not with words only, but with actions that speak even louder. You with me? In chapter 14, Jesus comforted troubled hearts by promising a place in heaven, promising to get us there, and promising the Holy Spirit to be with us and to help us every step of the way. In chapter 15, Jesus claimed to be the true vine, and we are the branches, and He assured us of a fruitful life as we abide in Him. In chapter 16, we're told of a coming day when all sorrow, all sorrow will turn to joy as the many trials of life will give way to everlasting triumph. In chapter 17, Jesus prayed. He prayed for our salvation and our sanctification and for our unity as He sends us out to those in need of both. In chapter 18, Jesus gave Himself over to His enemies, reminding them and us that His kingdom is not of this world. In chapter 19, King Jesus gave His life to give us ours. And in chapter 20, Jesus rose from the dead, appearing to Mary in her distress, to the disciples in their fear, And to Thomas in his doubt, and here in chapter 21, Jesus came again to meet them, to invite them, and now us, to himself, and thus to relationship with God. From one chapter to the next, the Apostle John has borne witness to these things and more, testifying to the saving work of Jesus Christ in our world and in our own lives. And as verse 25 attests, I love this. I love how John ends here. John could have gone on and on, sharing more and more about what Jesus has done. But indeed, the whole world cannot contain all the books that could be written. And yet, of all the things to which John testified, They all point, I think, to one all-surpassing thing. They all point us to the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's interesting how John, for 21 chapters, has never referred to himself by name. Instead, throughout this book, and here again in the closing verses, he simply calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's not pride on his part, not at all. 
It's not at all a look at me, look at me, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. It's not that at all. It's much more humble and much more grateful. It's really a statement of amazement. I think it's more like, listen to me, as unbelievable as it may seem, even I am a disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, of all the things he knew about himself, John knew most of all that Jesus loved him. He doesn't identify himself as the disciple who, one of the three disciples who, along with Peter and James, were kind of that inner circle with Jesus, who experienced some incredibly unique moments with Jesus. No, 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 John doesn't refer to himself that way. He doesn't identify himself as the last remaining original apostle, though he was by this time. He's an old man by this time, writing some 60-ish years after Christ died and rose and ascended to heaven. He doesn't identify himself that way. He doesn't identify himself as being particularly faithful or godly. Hey, you know, I was there. Peter left, but I was there when Jesus died. No, 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 that's not foremost on his mind. It's not what mattered most to John. I think what John wants us to know about him is that above everything else, he was loved by Jesus. John loved Jesus, and Jesus loved John, and such love compelled John to tell others about it. Isn't that the gist of all Christian testimony? You know, I could go on and on about my own personal testimony. Talk for hours and hours about the things that Jesus has done for me and in me and through me. You could do the same. You could, you could go on and on with story after story testifying to the incredible work of Christ in your life, we could spend not mere hours or days, but we could honestly spend months or even years recounting the ways that Jesus saves, retelling the many things that He has done, and all of it, every story, every instance, every piece of personal testimony owes to this one truth, that yes, we even we are dearly loved by Christ. You see, the kind of relationship John shared with Jesus is one that you can share too. I titled this final message, Our Life and Legacy in Christ, because that's it, essentially. Ours is a life of love, that's rooted in the life and love of Jesus. And so John wants us to remember who Jesus is and who we are because of it. Now, dear church, as we close our study of this gospel, I want you to know this, that because of all that Jesus did and said, you can trust Him You can follow Him. 
And you can testify with confidence to the great, great love of God. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for these moments. And I pray that indeed this reality would become our story more and more, that we would rejoice in the love of God in Jesus Christ and that such love would just permeate our entire beings so that we would be sent out with purpose to proclaim to others the great, great love of God. Do that in us and for us, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.